a defense of Quantum of Solace. We'll look at some of the pros, yes there are some, and the cons to Quantum of Solace and how valid each is. Hi, this is Dan. And Tom. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Your spy movie team bringing you the best coverage of spy movies in the world for almost five years. All right, we're going to give a few shout outs first to a few of our Facebook members who gave us some great feedback on our recent podcast episodes. Here's one from Topaz. This one's from John Coloresi. He said, I listened to your podcast episode on Topaz and enjoyed how you guys debated your points. Here's one on Tony Lee Morrell's Alfred Hitchcock storyboards that we just put out. Good background information on the Hitchcock process of filmmaking from Michael Fox. And here's a shout out to Lorenzo Granger, who gave us feedback on the Living Daylights and License to Kill Gadgets podcast. Amazing episode. Thanks, Lorenzo. All right, let's get into quantum. <laughs> a debated topic for many, many years. <laughs> quantum of Solace, the 22nd James Bond movie released in 2008, received mixed reviews from both critics and audiences, and lots of the audience hates this entry into the James Bond catalog. The reviews are mixed. <laughs> they are. But there are some good things that have been recognized about this movie. Oh, let's look at some of those first, and then we're going to get into the cons, and we'll see if the cons are legitimate. All right, here we go. Let's first look at one of the positives, the action sequences. Of course, some people say that's one of the negatives, too. But oh, those people at, are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> let's look at it first as a positive. The pre-title sequence, to me, is exciting and gets your adrenaline pumping because you, the audience, don't really get a breather here. You get zero time to catch your breath. The chase through Italy from Lake Garda to Siena is spectacular. It is burning high-octane fuel here, and it's visually stunning and so well-executed. Now, many have complained that they hated the shake cam treatment, you know, and the camera shaking all over the place, and the absolutely quick shots all from the interior of cars to the exterior of the cars, to the chases around curves, marble quarries, and more. And, yeah, there is all of that in these shots. But we think that this is what draws the audience into being a part of the chase. We almost feel the action here because we don't get a chance to take a breath, and it is nonstop action. I love that part. Yeah, and for me, you know, I've made the comment in other episodes about the fact that I'm not a huge shaky cam kind of person. Yeah, yeah. And when I rewatched this, I think it's I don't like shaky cam on people because on the cars, it, it actually, to me, worked. Yeah, that's and, what I'm thinking. And now, if you remember, when we talked to Roberto Schaefer, who was the director of cinematography for this movie, he talked about how Mark Forster wanted the opening to be nonstop, like you just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they really deliver. Let's listen to what Roberto said to us. And Mark will say that we're on bond. He says, I never want this to stop. He says, right. from the first shot, that first opening shot of right. the chase, yeah. he says, he's, I know he told second unit also, and, and the visual effects guy, he said, I want this to be 15 minutes where the audience doesn't take a breath. <laughs> they're just watching it and they're just caught and they just forget to breathe. That worked. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah, and I really Fantastic. do. Th I really do think that worked because the action is just nonstop. You have the pre-title with a hundred percent nonstop. Then you get the title sequence. There's a little bit in the office, and then bam, we're back into the action with the chase scene and 
Bond shooting Craig Mitchell at right about 15 minutes into the movie, which yeah. is what Roberto just talked about there. So, I mean, so far, when you watch this movie, that first 15 minutes just grips you, and you're like, what the heck is going on? So, yeah, I really do like the way they do this and how they I do, do the cutting in of yeah. the polio, which we're going to talk about a little bit. Yeah, and yeah. That whole sequence there is just really gripping and a great way to start this movie. I mean, this is Bondian. This is a Bondian movie. Like this, you can't start off a movie better than this in terms of what you would think a Bond movie would be. So, again, there's many critics of this part, but I'm all with Roberto here and thinking, yeah, this is fantastic. All right, we were just speaking about our podcast episodes with Roberto Schaefer, the director of cinematography for the movie. Let's talk about the cinematography. The film boasts impressive cinematography here with beautifully shot scenes in various exotic locations around the world. There are wonderful shots of Lake Garda in Italy and Siena as Bond arrives there in the pre-title. The Palio horse race in the town square of Siena. Oh, that was great. It's a real event. And it really happens. And the Quantum Masala's crew wanted to capture parts of the real Palio for the movie. So they actually started filming ahead of schedule to get the Palio shots in the can for the movie. So this is pretty good. So the, the Palio is held a couple of times a year. The first Palio of Provenzano is held July 2nd, while the second Palio del Asunta takes place on August 16th. There are parades and lots of festivities before the races, but the Sanese take this race very seriously. Sanese Contrade, the divisional areas like neighborhoods of the city, challenge each other in a horse race in the heart of the city in the Piazza del Campo with the special Contrade colors on. So a lot of what you see in the movie is the real Palio. Okay. And it's not it's not bulls running to pit, to maim people. So I like <laughs> yeah. that. This is no, a much this friendlier is cool. competition. <laughs> yeah, and each of the contrade, the, the neighborhoods, they have their own special colors and flags and stuff. They're really into this. So when we interviewed Roberto Schaefer that we mentioned, the director of cinematography for Consul Masalas, he had a tremendous amount of insight into the filming of this movie, from the color palettes from Goldfinger that they use to the meticulous setup shots to give an homage to Goldfinger when we see Strawberry Fields dead on the bed smothered in oil to the entire approach to the filming. Fascinating listen, so check that one out. We can't go into it all here, but I feel much better about this movie after hearing Roberto Schaefer tell us about how it was all filmed. Yeah, and I agree. That was a great discussion with Roberto. And yeah. we do have links to the two-episode interview in the notes to this episode. Yeah. So just yeah, check, check out the out. notes if you want to check out uh, that interview with Roberto. He's fascinating. Now, now this fascinating. movie does have one of the funnier James Bond bloopers in here. So if, if you remember, right around 25 minutes in, okay. Bond gives his card to the guard on the dock. Oh, and, yeah, you, yeah. Know, the, you know, when Camillo goes and she meets Dominic Green and then Medrano, right? Yeah. Anyway, behind Bond, he's sitting on that motorcycle. Right. There's a guy in orange pants sweeping the dock with a broom. Well, yeah. watch closely. The broom doesn't even get to within a foot of the ground while he's sweeping. He just does this fake oh, really? action. I, like I've he's never sweeping. noticed. I've and, never noticed that. You know, I don't <laughs> know. Is that a cinematography problem? Is that a Mark Forster's direction? Is that an editing? Is that they only took the one shot and they didn't catch that was going on? But all <laughs> I know is this actor just half-assed his assignment, and I'm sure he's bragging to his friends about how he was in a Bond movie. 
but I really Sweeping think he blew it here. So, you know, every time I see this, it does make me laugh. It just, it's just really, really funny. I got to go check that out again. I never noticed that. Yeah, it's around, it's around 25 minutes in. It's, it's, it's really short, but it just, just absolutely floors me every time I see it. All right. right so let's move on to another uh, pro of Quantum of Solace. Yeah, there are more. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Now this one can be a pro or a con, right? Uh, they I'm all. I'm going to start talking about it as a pro. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Good. And that is that Quantum of Solace serves as a direct sequel to Casino Royale. Yeah, yeah. And we haven't really had that. You know, there was a little bit of there was that mention in From Russia with Love about yeah. James Bond, but it really wasn't like the story was continuing. It was just another mission. Yeah, yeah, I from Russia with love. It was like revenge for Bond killing Doctor No. Right. So, yeah. but it wasn't like you said, it wasn't a continuation. Yeah, and this is revenge for the death of Vesper. Yeah. Right. And again, some see this as a con and not a good thing. Now, yeah. personally, I like it when Bond is assigned a mission and must go execute on that mission. Period. Yeah. We're doing the mission. Boom. Operation Thunderball. Bedlam. Tro. Whatever it is. Right. Mission complete. Move on. Next mission. And now I guess you could say it took two movies maybe to complete this mission. Yeah. Now, when yeah. we talk about this as a con a little bit later, we're going to talk more about that. <laughs> yeah. But again, some yeah, people saw I, that as a positive. Some people did. And I'm, I'm mixed on that. So I, I have to say that, uh, but it, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit later. I, I think there are some good parts to that as well, but anyway, we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's look at the performance here of the actors, the, the main participants here. Daniel Craig delivers a strong performance as James Bond. He's portraying the character with a gritty and determined edge to him. Really back to the Fleming version of James Bond, which I like, a blunt instrument of the government. Again, some like this and some, <laughs> some do not like this. Some like Craig and others do not like Craig. We think Craig's performance in Casino Royale and here in Quantum of Solace is solid and very Bondian. It is a throwback to Timothy Dalton's version of Bond, which is, again, more like how Fleming wrote Bond. Remember Fleming said once, I didn't intend for Bond to be likable. <laughs> we actually have a video on our YouTube channel on this. Craig is Bond in so many ways. I mean, I, I think he did a good job. Yeah, I mean, I guess. You know, what? you know, my, my thoughts of Craig was, I thought he was really good in Casino Royale and he then was. tapered off pretty quickly. Oh um, man. Really? And so I'm not, you know, he's okay here. He's closer to what he did in Casino Royale, but he is changing the character. Now you mentioned that uh, vid, the YouTube channel video. Again, we'll have a link to that video in the episode notes of this episode. Now you talk about Craig. Now there were some other very solid performances as well. Yeah. Olga Kurilenko as Camille Montes was well, she was very good. Yeah, she and, was. And she plays a Bond girl who never sleeps with Bond. Which I loved that part of this movie. What an idea. <laughs> <laughs> now, 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 another solid performance here was by Joaquin Cosio. Now, he, was, he played General Medrano, and he did a great job with yeah. this role. He's he fantastic. Was, he was very believable. He was nasty. Um, he's good in everything he's been in, whether it's the Narcos TV series, or I just rewatched the movie Savages the other night, and he does a great job in that one too. So yeah. it's it's just one of those. He's one of those actors you don't see him all that often, but yeah. when you see him, it's like wow, this guy's good. Like you said, like I said, he's believable in this character. You look at him, and you think, yeah, okay. You're not thinking, hey, he's acting. It's this guy acting, whatever. It's a great representation of General Medrano. 
and I love it. All yeah, right. and you, I mean, just look at how his face is yeah. when he's pretty much raping the yeah. hotel receptionist, waitress, whatever yeah, yeah, she yeah, was yeah. in Chile, right? She was, yeah. she was just, he was just so into that, and it was like, wow, that yeah. was really good to me. Yeah, I don't think he could have been any better. And hey, uh, so that was a great here, performance. Dan. Huh? Do you know who she was or is? Ooh. That actress? No. That he's, he's raving? Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Eugene O'Neill's great granddaughter. <laughs> Eugene O'Neill's great granddaughter. No so a little kidding. fun fact. Keep that all in right. your mind. Keep that in the back of your mind for a trivia quiz someday. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right, we also got Jeffrey Wright, of course. Man, he's fantastic as Lighter. Felix Lighter. Again, perfection here. Gemma Arterton, she was great as Strawberry Fields. Charming, innocent, and beautiful. I don't know why they never brought her name out in the movie Strawberry, but they just called her Yeah, it was only in the credits. Yeah, only in the credits. All right, now Matu Amalik as Dominique Green takes a lot of heat, really. But... I think he's an understated evil man, willing to kill anyone to get his way, willing to make millions suffer to get his way, and presented simply by Matteau. So he's somewhat similar to a Goldfinger, an Elliot Carver, even a Fran Sanchez, in that he's a regular guy who's going to do some nasty stuff. But unlike Goldfinger and unlike Carver, He's just a jerk in this movie, right? He is a there, jerk. There's no, there's no like persona that those other characters have. And no. I think some people were put off by that, but I think Almarik plays that well, right? You, yeah. This guy's it, it, just supposed to be just a jerk and I'm going to yeah. do what I'm going to do. And, and it's bad. And I don't yeah. really give a darn. And I, I, uh, I, really, deal I, with. I thought for a guy who wanted to control the water supply of a country again, Hey, that's his simple mission. He was the right guy. Like you said, he is like Goldfinger or Fran Sanchez. They, they want to control one thing. They don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to make a new race uh, in underwater. I don't want whatever. It's, so he doesn't have much flair and there's not much depth in his personality that's revealed, but he's simply ruthless. And to everyone, like you said, now, another thing is, I think that the writer strike probably affected the depth of this character yeah maybe i don't think matthew had much to work with in the script i know the and we're going to talk more about the strike a little bit later and how it affected this movie but yeah yeah i know it changed it dramatically and i think green is one area that the strike didn't help because they couldn't develop the characters as much we're going to talk more about green in the con section of this episode but i don't think the problems were because of the actor I think it was the script that he was given. Yeah. And I, I think and, and to some degree, I, I don't have a problem with this character development on the screen because it's pretty simple. He's a ruthless son of a bitch and a bastard. And he's that way to everybody. And he plays it off, I think, pretty well. All right. Now we got Giancarlo Giannini. I mean, I love this guy. He's one of my favorite <laughs> Bond allies. Yeah, he, he really is. Good. Of all times. He, yeah, yeah. He's just fantastic. He plays Mathis, of course, to absolute perfection in every scene he was in so hats off to Giancarlo Giannini yeah absolutely great great character and really really well performed yeah so so there you got some real positives on the acting end in this movie as well I think another area that we've got some positives is the score yeah yeah the musical score it was was composed by David Arnold 
Yep. Right. So they brought him back. Yeah. And then this thing is widely praised for his atmospheric and suspenseful themes, which add some depth to the movie's action sequences. Yeah. Really, yeah. if you take the music virtually out of any movie, and the scenes will be less impactful. Absolutely. No question about that. Yeah, but here, Arnold does a great job of capturing the essence of the scene, intensifying it, and making it better with his music. Yeah, well, he's, he's got experience on Bond movies, too. He's, he worked on Tomorrow Never Dies, 1997. The World Is Not Enough in 1999. Die Another Day, 2002. He shouldn't brag about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Casino Royale. We're talking about the music. Casino Royale, 2006, and now Quantum of Solace, 2008. So he's, he's got some good experience in the Bond world and uh, writing the scores. So that's pretty cool. In the book, The Music of James Bond by John Burlingame, a great book, by the way, he quotes Arnold as saying about his scoring of Quantum, quote, I was writing themes inspired by the characters and places in the film rather than the story, unquote. He quotes him again saying, quote, the story takes care of itself and music will inform you emotionally about people, unquote. Yeah, that was a change in scoring and he enjoyed it, though it took him, he said, eight months to do it this way. But there is a different perspective on writing the score for the movie. You're writing it to the scenes. You're writing it to the characters. Yeah, that's pretty different. But yeah, it, was cool. it abs absolutely is. And that theme there got expounded on in Matthew Field and A.J. Chowdhury's excellent book, Some Kind of Hero. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. David Arnold says in there, quote, What was unusual was that Mark Forster sent me cut sequences, actually assembled sequences of the characters. He sent wow. me green. So I could write him something that felt like it belonged to him. He sent stuff about the actual organization. So I was able to write a sort of quantum theme. Yeah. So it was interesting coming up with music away from the movie. So this is a different way than he scored the other movies. I think it's very effective with the way they did that. It is. And yeah. I like when a character has kind of a theme around them. If you think about, we've talked about Winton and Kid. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, in, in diamonds. So yeah. it's it's really nice to see that. That, that concept is, is not new of writing a theme around a character. I mean, really, if you even go back to the TV shows, the Andy Griffith show, for instance, I mean, Barney Fife, the deputy for Sheriff Taylor, he had his own theme music when he was doing something, and Andy kind of had his. So, I mean, the concept is not different, but we do like the scoring here. We like the concept, and many agree this is a positive in the movie. I would I would agree with you there. All right, so another another thing that I would then look at is the costuming for Bond changed starting with this movie. So costume designer Louise Fogarty had Tom Ford replace the Briani suits that we'd seen Pierce Brosnan wearing as Bond or that Daniel Craig had in Casino Royale, okay. and it did change the look a little bit. We're told that these suits don't have belts, they have side adjusters, they're higher on the waist. The trousers are narrow and no pleats. I mean, it's a different cut different than, look. What we're, than what we're used to seeing, yeah. in part because of how muscular Daniel Craig was. So Ford did the look of Bond through No Time to Die. So it's interesting to see when the look changes a bit because the designer changed. Yeah. And I think for good. I think that was, I, yeah, I, I like the Briani suits, but I like the Ford suits and, and the way they, they work with Daniel. Yeah, I mean, he looks good. I mean, really, most of the costuming for Bond is is spectacular. I mean, David Zariski, his whole career was talking about the Bond experience and the costuming that goes into these movies. But 
and that's another talent that is you know beyond any we could talk about in this particular episode but man the costuming people are terrific and in this case i think you look sharp you look good yeah right. i agree now let, let's look at some of the cons and there are some oh, there are <laughs> come on <laughs> now are they legitimate or are they overstated uh, let, we're going to take a look at that because we're really trying to look at this from an objective point of view the plot look at the plot people sometimes and we're not thrilled with the plot. Many critics and audiences found the plot of Quantum to be convoluted and difficult to follow. A bit. Now, wait, but you know the film's focus on Bond's quest for revenge rather than a traditional espionage plot that was also criticized. I mean, come on, Bond has done this before, though, right? I mean, remember License to Kill? And I mean, has he ever gone rogue? Oh my God. So here people were getting upset. Wait, wait, maybe. wait, an agent, an agent going rogue. Hmm, <laughs> maybe, let me see. <laughs> maybe people are getting upset that he's going rogue again. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, because this is basically a sequel to Casino Royale, we must be a bit in the dark as to what will happen next. It's a sequel. We don't know what's going to happen next. What's the mission? Why is Bond frantically chased in the pre-title and all of that? And what does Mr. White have to do with anything? And what did Bond do with White after the end of Casino Royale when he shot him in the leg? And then he stood over him with his great delivery of, for the first time, from Daniel Craig. The name's Bond. James Bond. We never had a true sequel before, so I see some of the angst of viewers with this movie. Why is it a sequel? Why should we care? What the hell is the story here? Yeah. <laughs> Is it, yeah, it's a bit. is it angst or angst? <laughs> angst. <laughs> it's angst. And yeah, it's a bit rough, mostly because of quantum. And what I mean by quantum is the organization. Once we discover who Mr. White really is and how powerful he is and that they have people everywhere, it becomes clearer that MI6 out. has another major, major foe. So you yeah, know, this whole... I kind of like that. This like whole that. thing gets really muddied because they wanted this to be a direct sequel. In fact, they started writing it before Casino Royale went into production. Mm -hmm. And the plot changed a bunch of times, which is normal, right? It's normally when they're, when mm -hmm. they're trying to hash this stuff out. If you look at some of the early treatments for any oh, yeah. of the, you know, Maybaum stuff, if you look through his collection, the stories can change dramatically from when dramatically. they start doing yeah, it right, yeah, yeah. right. But besides... Purvis and Wade, who you know I don't like, they brought Paul Haggis back, who also did writing for Casino Royale. Yeah. One of the earlier cuts in the story from Purvis and Wade before Haggis got in there, if they had stuck to it, we might not have had the stories for No Time to Die Inspector because Mr. White was shot in that movie. Killed? Killed. Oh, so Madeline's, okay. Madeline's father would have been dead, so Bond wouldn't have gone to see her for the first time. Inspector... I mean, it, it's it really the fact that they changed that really changed the course of the series. Yeah. yeah, right? yeah. Now, one big problem with the plot and and the lack of depth of many of the characters has to be because of that writer's strike. So what happened, yeah. if you don't remember this, is the script wasn't done by the time they started filming. Um, right. Which again is another thing that's not all that unusual. But yeah. there was a writer's strike, and once the writer's strike started. 
writers couldn't contribute to changes to the script. Right, so what happened right. in that case is Mark Forster and Daniel Craig had to do the rewrites. Yeah, I mean, so you got the director and the and the key actor doing the rewrites. Yeah, and <laughs> there yeah. was an uncredited rewrite by Joshua Zumer, but um, you know, yeah. Daniel Craig describes what happened in the book Some Kind of Hero. And he starts out and he says, we were effed, right? <laughs> we were screwed. I, I'm editing that word. Um, we had the bare bones of a script. Me and the director were the, were the ones allowed to rewrite it. The rules were that you couldn't employ anyone as a writer, but the actor and director could work on scenes together. And Craig ended the discussion by saying, there was me trying to rewrite scenes and a writer. I am not. So as <laughs> okay, much as yeah, I complain. I would agree there. As much as I complain about Purvis and Wade, with good reason, I believe, I don't think <laughs> this do. yeah. script had a chance to be solid. It wasn't. I don't think it had a chance because they continued to work on it during the writer's strike. That said... But there is good stuff in there. There is. One of my favorite scenes in yeah. the, Craig ser the Craig series of the Bond series is that the way the Tosca opera scene was filmed. Oh, yeah. I love yeah, the yeah. way that was written. I love the way it was filmed. So I want to give them credit for that one. Um, that was, was good. Great. It's too bad Mission Impossible Rogue Nation had to try to rip it off with its turn don't scene. But yeah, um, yeah, they did, didn't they? Yeah. I think so. So all of this said, the plot does have problems. But if you sit and watch Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace back to back, the continuation between the two movies does seem to work here. Yeah. So... It's, it's, it's not thoroughly flushed out, but the continuation part of this does make sense. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the cons and we're, we're addressing the con and we think, Hey, this con can be overcome. All right. That's, that's good. Well, let's look at more of the stuff that people did not like about it in terms of this movie pacing. Lots of the viewers felt that the fast paced editing and relentless action combined to make the movie disjointed and difficult to follow <laughs> maybe even resulted they think in there not being enough time for true character development with emotional depth and layers of the characters revealed yeah right. well that's that's a good point <laughs> yeah i mean it is a good point the pace makes the movie chaotic in times and hard to follow as many have said but well the film does delve into bond's emotional state really to a degree some critics feel that the other characters, such as Bond's love interest, Camille Montez, they're underdeveloped She wasn't characters. a love interest, Dan. They never slept. Well, I know. I think, he, I think he actually, I think he actually was, was falling for her a little bit. Yeah, and she see, I, I kind basically of, was thinking, nah. I didn't, I didn't get that out of it. I, okay. All right. Well, I don't know. Okay. Maybe not. Because Bond, but, Bond always succeeds when he tries. Not really. <laughs> In the books, he does not either. And so that's, that's, uh, you know. Yeah. No, I love that in the books. Sometimes he doesn't get the girl. <laughs> that's that's good. All right. Anyway, let's talk about this underdevelopment concept. Underdeveloped characters in any movie, it makes it harder for the audience to empathize with the characters or connect with them in a real deep level. So it makes it challenging for audiences to fully really get invested in their stories. However, much of their stories have been revealed anyway here. Because really, if you look at this, for example, we learn a lot about Camille Montez and her whole family history with General Medrano, right? 
we know enough about Dominique and, Green and, to and, know. And we find out about Camille's background. It's a really short s- sequence, but it's you a short find sequence. Out what but you we need. know a lot about her. Yeah, you found out what you needed to know. Yeah, I mean, and and her in, her interaction with Bond as well when she's revealing what happened. We we know a lot about her past history, so I don't think she's underdeveloped in terms of that. So we know enough about Dominic Green too to know his place in this evil plot. He's the son of a gun. General Medrano. I, I might have used a different word. <laughs> all right. General Medrano, we learned through Camille's story and Dominic Green's proposal to restore him as the leader of Bolivia to know more about him as well. So we get a good glimpse into his past and his personality and how he is. And for the pacing, yeah. <laughs> the opening chase sequence, the boat chase the up-close fighting sequences like Bond fighting in the hotel room in Haiti. I mean, it's all hot action, that's for sure. Well, but- they got, they brought over the um, second unit director. I can't remember his name, but he would worked on Bourne. Yeah, yeah. So okay. you, you kind of got that feel from it. Yeah, you did get that feel from it, and it was a little Bourne-like. But there were moments in the movie where the audience does get a small breather. Okay, all right? <laughs> After each of these rapid-paced examples that we just said you know the chase in the opening sequence the boat chase and all that kind of stuff that we just talked about the fight in hotel there's a small breather for the audience for example and and actually a little bit more character revelation as well as bond is killing the man i love this scene as bond is killing the man in haiti on the balcony he he casually looks around while waiting for the man to die yeah i mean (laughs) now that number one gives us a breather and number two it shows how ruthless bond is as this blunt instrument of the government it's like would you hurry up and die i got things i gotta do you know like holy jeez wow die already yeah and then after the boat chase scene when bond saves camille from medrano he carries her off the boat She's passed out, and he hands her off to someone saying she's seasick. Okay, that's that's <laughs> an homage, like right? That before, <laughs> yeah, it's an homage to Sean Connery's uh, Bond in Thunderball. She's just dead after Volpe is shot while he's dancing with her. So we do get a little rest here once in a while. So we think some of the criticism of the pacing here is overblown, at least a little. Okay, now I'm going to agree with the pacing being off, but don't don't forget. You know, you talked about the fast-paced cutting and everything. That was Peter Hunt's and Dr. No's claim to fame, right? I mean, that was one of the things everybody credits as such a good thing in Dr. No is how fast-paced that editing was. Yeah, yeah. I so know. We, we got that here in this movie. And again, the action sequences, I, I, I remember the name now. The, the uh, second unit director they brought in was uh, Dan Bradley. Mm. And so he comes in. But one scene that I thought was the pacing was way off wasn't an action sequence. It was when Green and Madrano walked in with their team into Perla de la Dunas, the, the hotel there towards the end. I mean, it took 40 seconds from the time they started getting out of their cars to the time they got together. Now, David Arnold's music tried to hold this together, but why the heck was this so long? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it just okay. seemed like it was drawn out and took forever. And quite honestly, the conversation they had, I thought was fairly boring. It was important to know that Green was, mm. you know, blackmailing him or whatever. Saying, yeah, the conversation know. part, I, I think we're going to talk about the dialogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. dialogue, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, and there's obviously a reference to the Godfather in this sequence. But I just didn't under, understand that taking so long. That scene 
really seems slow to me, not fast paced cut. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing is this movie is only an hour and 46 minutes. Yeah. It's the shortest Eon Productions James Bond movie. I mean, it was five minutes shorter than Dr. No. Yeah. And, and again, I think the writer's strike hurt here. Yeah. That's probably part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because they didn't have enough to work with. Yeah. Plus the editors, Matt Chessie and Richard Pearson, they only had five or six weeks to edit the movie. Yeah. And again, in the book, Some Kind of Hero, Mark Forster tells us, normally I've had 14 weeks for my film so far for editing. Six weeks for this film is crazy. Yeah. It is With The Dark crazy. Knight, Christopher Nolan had a year to cut that movie to work Jeez. on the visual effects. Yeah. I didn't, I don't have that time and compromises had to be made. So to me, mm. the compromises had to be made. And unfortunately we see it on the screen. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's, uh, that's, those are good points. Those are good points. And I, I think it, it does fail a little bit there because of that and the dialogue as well. But we're going to, I want to talk about that because the dialogue is an issue. All right, look, the movie was not a favorite of the critics, that's for sure. And, and though, though some have defended it, and we are in, in a big way defending it today. But beyond the critics, the viewers, the real James Bond fans, they, they weren't thrilled with the aspect of this movie, the pacing, the character development, or the whole movie in general. So, But I think one of the problems is quantum. First of all, quantum. What the hell is quantum? We didn't really know. Right? The title is taken from an Ian Fleming short story from his collection, For Your Eyes Only, as we all know. But the story in the movie has nothing to do with the story as it's written. Well, that's, but that's common sure. in the Bond series, right? They take a piece of, you know, yeah, yeah. it might be a phrase from and make it a title or whatever. Yeah, I'm fine with but that. I mean, right? In this case, the writer Paul Haggis had chosen the title Sleep of the Dead. Ooh, how like dead that. people can be left to sleep, you know, how dead people. Are, are left to sleep and we don't have to, and that's really what Bond is getting to as these people die. But yeah, well, who changed Broccoli it to ended up changing it to Quantum oh, of Solace. Barbara Broccoli changed it? Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> hmm. All right. Anyway, in the book, Bond is at a dinner party in Nassau with the governor and the guests leave and Bond and the governor are chatting and, and the Mid-Ocean Club is mentioned here and the governor defines what Quantum of Solace means. So, Basically, he tells Bond that a relationship between a man and a woman can survive just about anything, quote, so long as some kind of basic humanity exists between the two people. Okay, what does that mean? He goes on to emphasize that all things can be overcome, but, quote, never the death of common humanity in one of the partners, unquote. So the governor said he invented a high-sounding name for this basic factor in human relationships and he called it the law of the quantum of solace yes so quantum of solace is the amount of comfort left in a relationship and when the quantum stands at zero the other person doesn't care if you live or die basically then it is the end it's over wow all right that is insightful for this movie i think yeah i think so and the the thing though is for the movie yeah. The conversation between the Bond and the governor really doesn't have anything in the movie, right? So No, no. But now Other that we, than... now that we know what quantum of solace means, because an audience member doesn't really get that, All right. what in the movie embraces that concept? Well, uh, you look at Green. Green and his relationship with Camille has a quantum of zero, right? <laughs> I mean, he 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 despises her. He has he doesn't care if she lives or dies. General Madrano and Camille and her family 
What's that oh, wait, quantum? He tried, to, he tried to have her killed. So, you know. Yeah. What's yeah. that quantum? I think he got zero there or, as well. Or, so or negative. <laughs> yeah. So all of this is meaningful. Green and the people of Bolivia and the other countries. Where's that quantum? Zero. Remember, General Medrano was once the military dictator of his home country, Bolivia, but was later overthrown and exiled. And now he makes a deal with Green and his criminal organization, Quantum, to overthrow the current Bolivian government and regain control, this time as president. So yeah, Quantum so Masala's definition from the book is really meaningful to the movie once you know this. Yeah, that's true. But where does Bond fit in? I mean, I, remember, he's still trying to avenge the death of Vesper, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. The the quantum between Bond and Vesper at the end of Casino Royale was zero. The bitch is yeah. dead. Right? Yeah, yeah, that, definitely. I, but I I think in the movie here, the real quantum of solace is that Bond, I think, has moved the needle on his previous relationship with Vesper. The quantum is no longer zero. It it, it is now in his own mind advanced a little bit in his reflection of that. Uh, yeah, relationship and that's I, just I, a thought I, yeah I, I agree with you there because i mean bond has come to terms with vesper's death yeah, and yeah. her betrayal and right. the fact that he doesn't kill yusuf at the end yes was showing that he had reached a modicum or a quantum of solace there you go over her death he didn't Excellent. avenge it yeah plus Excellent. again i'm going to go back to what i said earlier paul haggis's title for this was sleep of the dead not quantum of solace so yeah all right, so I think we're on to something here. And, and I think this makes the movie more meaningful once you understand Quantum of Solace from the book, from the short story. All right, back to the movie. All right. Quantum, <laughs> the term quantum. It is confusing. It's the confusing part of the movie because we never heard much of that before. In Casino Royale, quantum, it's featured in the background, but not named really. It's represented only through its middleman really, Mr. White. So it is covert, especially to us, the audience. But remember, Dr. No introduced us to Spectre, and we didn't hear that ever before. That's for the first time, right? And we were okay with that, and we got used to Spectre over the decades. But Quantum, another twist to this movie that befuddled viewers and made the movie confusing. So well, now one thing they did do with this, though, that I did like, and it's really quick, Okay. But in the scene where they're in the bathroom at the opera and they're putting the ear things yes. in and they open up the kit, there is like a little pin that's the cue from the cue in the title of her quantum. Yeah. So it's yeah, like yeah. that's their symbol and they're getting that. To me, it kind of made me feel of the uh, Spectre octopus ring. Right. Oh, that, okay. that was their All symbol right. that everybody had. Here, the symbol became this cue, okay. the, the, the silver cue with the. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the yeah, when of, Bond uh, uh, gets one of their guys in the bathroom and takes his kit. Yeah, yeah and so there's okay, a cue with a little yeah. uh, curly bottom part of it. Right. And so that's really the only thing that I think kind of helps us understand that this is a bigger organization. They've got stuff like that ready. It's not just, you know, there's marketing yeah. involved with part of this. So I think exactly follow up to that. I mean, the concept really is uh, of quantum is rather easy to grasp, really. Companies have divisions with special focuses. Kraft Heinz, for instance, hey, they got a division for Kraft cheeses. They got a division <laughs> for Heinz ketchups. They got a division for Maxwell House coffees. <laughs> so say, Spectre has a division called Quantum. All right, we get it now. There you go. <laughs> yeah, but if, if they didn't go for continuity with the Daniel Craig arc, 
Yeah, yeah. We yeah, wouldn't yeah. have to make up excuses like doing a, re- a reference with crap. The whole Daniel Craig arc thing right. is a whole nother right. story. I, I don't, I'm not with the people that say, oh, this is a little bundle of big James Bond stuff that's separate from everything else that James Bond stuff. No, I don't buy that whole arc thing. I don't buy the, the oh, you got to look at Daniel Craig's whole reign as Bond as a separate entity. No, I don't buy that at all. So, but that's another discussion. All right. <laughs> let's look at the villains the villain was a negative here Uh, uh, come on the main antagonist dominique green played by matu Elmerik, was considered by some to be a genuine shortcoming of the movie we talked a little bit about this that he he was really one of the weaker villains in the bond franchise lacking of course the memorable presence of iconic adversaries like blofeld or goldfinger or even Fran Sanchez from License to Kill. Here, Green was lackluster by comparison, personally. But I think by design as well. Yeah, personally, I love the plot and the villain because it is rather simple. Green wants to control the water supply in Bolivia. He will get millions of dollars for the organization for that. It's like Goldfinger, he wanted to control the gold, like you mentioned earlier. Fran Sanchez, he wanted to control his drug empire. Or Zorin, controlling the computer microchip industry in the world. These are real villainous things to do. Unlike The Spy Who Loved Me, where Stromberg wants to start the world all over again, but underwater. <laughs> or Moonraker, starting the best of the best species in space, while people on the Earth are wiped out. Hey, quantum is simple. Water. Okay, so it's interesting that you used the Moonraker example there Yeah, well, talking about this villain because Mathieu Almeric reached out and talked to Michelle Lanthale who had done Moonraker before yeah, yeah. accepting the part. But so he, you know, he reached out to him and I actually thought that Drax was another fairly lackluster Bond villain. I like and, Drax though. And so, but, but the, not, not the same effervescence as some of these other ones. Have. Absolutely the same, not. The, right. the, the, the character isn't as pronounced there as, as big. Right. No. And so I, and it, I just found it interesting that Amarik reached out to Lonsdale for this when they both characters, I think are somewhat similar in how the portrayal of them are. I think this, this quantum thing, I agree with you. The quantum thing is a confusing part of it because yeah. You know, we barely got a mention of it, or it was barely there in the background in Casino yeah, yeah. Royale. And- but I think we've we've uh, we've meticulously clarified it here. <laughs> <laughs> Clear as mud, Dan. Clear as mud. <laughs> should be should be no more muddy water. All right, <laughs> let's look at another negative lack of Bond traditions. What? Yeah, Quantum of Solace deviates from many of the traditional elements and formula of the James Bond series. Really. Here, we have no Q and no Money Penny for the second movie in a row. Wow. We love those two characters who have been in most James Bond movies from Purvis the beginning. and Wade don't care about the history. Yeah. They're part of the James Bond formula that makes James Bond movies tick and makes them somewhat predictable, but in a very good way. Uh, you know. Yeah, see, okay. I think so, Purvis and Wade thought, oh, that's all Maybom stuff. We're going to go our own way. Hey, okay, all right. But, I mean, for me, every time Q was involved in a scene, especially played by Desmond Llewellyn, it just made me smile. Same with Money Penny. It just felt warm and fuzzy when she was in a scene, especially before Skyfall when she was in the field as an agent. All right, it also yeah, no, wait, broke... Wait a, second, though, wait a second, though. Those characters, right, 
yeah. I agree with you. There were delight in the earlier ones. Now, Robert Wade was con- Robert Wade talked about the fact that there were various drafts of Quantum of Solace. I talked about the fact that yeah, there yeah, were multiple yeah. versions of the stories, and in some of those drafts, Money Penny was in it, and in another yeah, one, see? M M was killed. So th- those two terrible writers had to wait another movie before they could finally <laughs> knock her off. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's so it is interesting when you look at how the movie shapes and it gets flushed out. Yeah, the character of Money Penny at one point was in this movie. Okay, I hey, should have kept him. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and we're talking about breaking the molds of uh, traditional Bond movies. It also broke the mold of the independent missions that Bond had been on, and all the times he had gone rogue. By Quantum of Solace being a continuation story, this is what breaks the mold. Picking up right where Casino Royale ended. Some people did not like this at all, while others did not seem to mind. But it did break the mold yeah, again. and again if you sit down and watch these movies back to back it works yeah when he he says bond james bond and then boom you've got the yep. car chase it that, yeah i, I think yeah. That, that's really good now yeah. the craig era actually broke a lot of the james bond molds and yeah. now we can argue that from russia with love was in a way a sequel to dr no again because specter was out for revenge for bond's killing of dr no but it wasn't really a sequel it wasn't the, you know, the trunk slams. No, no, no. And then the no. next movie starts with that. No. Even Daniel Craig here expressed, I mean, you're talking about Q and Money Penny being absent from these these movies, Casino Royale and Quantum. Even Daniel Craig expressed concern about them not being in the first two movies that he was doing for, as Bond, and he hoped that they would return in, in Skyfall. So this is a legitimate criticism because I think most James Bond fans just, hey, we love Q and Money Penny, and... Their absence was an issue. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll give you that their absence was an issue, especially since this, since this was the second movie with that. But yeah. Casino Royale is considered one of the best Bond movies it is. ever. Yeah. And it didn't have Q and Money Penny in it. I know. We now, got over it. <laughs> and this, of course, with Casino Royale, part of that was because we were in the early days of Bond in terms of his story. He was earning his double O status. Yeah, yeah. So you would <laughs> think if he's earning his double O status that Q and M would have been around. Yeah. You know, but by quantum fans definitely want them back. Yeah, I think so too. But you know, movies and series often break a mold to try to be fresh, new, updated, whatever. So I don't have a problem in general with that concept, but here, yeah, they broke a lot of the tradition all at once and it was not very welcome, but well, and it's, watching... per- and it's Purvis and Wade trying to get rid of the old school stuff. <laughs> right. And yeah, I think I they kind of Purvis and Wade had to Bam. bring them back. Yeah. For, you know, Skyfall. So hey, you rewatch Quantum a few times and the movie does grow on you and you come to accept for the most part these changes and you run with the story. So there you go. Was the reception overwhelmingly positive for this movie? We kind of mentioned that already. Yeah. It performed pretty well at the box office. Quantum of Solace was really within yeah, so a few it, million dollars of Casino Royale and worldwide. So it die box another office. day. I don't get it. Gross. Well, I mean, you know. Bond fans are Bond fans. We they want to go see the movie. They're going to go see the movie. It received less favorable reviews, though, compared to its predecessor, Casino Royale, of course, with some critics considering it a weaker entry in the Bond franchise. Now, wait, to be hey. fair, most Bond movies are a weaker entry than when you're comparing them to Casino Royale. Absolutely. I agree. Casino Royale has got to be up there in the top five as a Bond movie. There is hardly any Bond movie, like you just said, that... From the beginning, from Dr. No on, 
that's in the same league for storyline, quality, adherence to the Fleming novel, whatever, than Casino Royale. So it's a top five Bond movie in most people's view, I think, of Bond movies. So yeah, continuation entry, Quantum of Solace, it's going to be less well-received because it was following really one of well, the best. And it, and it was, the, it was also a continuation, which was yeah. something new and you know, we don't yeah. like new. All right, let's talk about the dialogue because the dialogue... What do you think about the dialogue, Tom? You well, you know, yeah, it needed a little help. And again, I'm going to blame this on the writer's strike, right? Because we love the way that we get the Bond quips and stuff, and we don't really get a lot of that here. I mean, so, like, if you think about Goldfinger, right? Yeah. Every Bond fan in the world knows. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. That's, that's really that. good stuff. But here in Quantum of Solace you don't really get a ton of memorable lines. I mean, maybe not M really, has not the best. Bond lines. Yeah, definitely not Bond lines. I mean, maybe M has the best line in the thing when she says, Bond, if you could avoid killing every possible lead, it would be deeply appreciated. <laughs> yeah, that's or, a good one. Or maybe <laughs> Mathis is. But I guess when one's young, it seems very easy to distinguish between right and wrong. But as one gets older, it becomes more difficult. The villains and the heroes get all mixed up. But yeah. Are there any bond lines that are good? I mean, not much. not that much, but no. that that land line by Mathis really summarizes everything that a secret agent and a MI6 agent is, right? Everybody who's working as an agent for whatever country they're working for thinks they're they're in the right. And so that line from Mathis is one of the best lines in any of these movies. So that I think was a very strong line. Like you just said though, where are the good bond lines? Yeah, he, I mean, the only, the only good bond line he has is when he gives uh, Camille to the, uh, you know, when he gets off the boat. Yeah, right. Yeah, and we talked, you know, we talked about that earlier, and that's really about the only good line he's got. Yeah, she's seasick, and uh, yeah, uh, that really it was a throwback to, like we said, to uh, Thunderball. Anyway, so yeah, certain moments of dialogue in this movie have been criticized for being overly simplistic or lacking the wit and the sophistication that we typically have seen and associated with other Bond movies and it's it's a pretty fair criticism here i think all right overall though we think that over the years quantum of solace has gotten better and we remind you to go listen to our podcast episodes with roberto schaefer the director of cinematography for the movie for some great insights there if you have to stack rank all the bond movies there are a lot of good ones quantum is not at the top but we think it's a solid entry into the james bond movie world breaking some molds along the way like we talked about but in the big picture, looking better than first thought. Yeah, so now when you say that, the writer's strike really impacted this movie. Yeah. And they had originally wanted to get this movie out in 2007, so they would have a 007 movie in 2007. Yeah. And, and they missed it. So if they missed that date, should they have waited until after the writer's strike to finish this thing? I yeah. think it would have ended up with a better movie. But in general, hey, we've defended it here, I think, about as well as any legal team could defend a client. <laughs> and our defense rests for Quantum of Solace. <laughs> That's a wrap. This has been Dan. And Tom. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Subscribe to our show and your favorite podcast app and to our YouTube channel as well. Lots of fun stuff there. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you spending time with us. Thanks.